Ryan wasn't lying this morning since I walked in the door. All sorts of stuff has gone wrong. So I'm going to start with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we need you. We need you to remind us of your power and your strength, that our identity is found in you, not in anything that we do. Father, we need you, um, we need you to remind us of, of the truth. Um, we need you to remind us of, of what it is you've called us to give our hearts to. Uh, I pray that you would forgive us for the times when we have given our hearts and our minds away to human authorities instead of to you. Forgive us for the times that we've trusted in leaders, human leaders, instead of you. Uh, Father, I pray this morning that we would see uh, you as the better king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're joining us uh, for the first time, or maybe the first time in a while, welcome back, students. Um, we've been going through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. <clears throat> and among other things, uh, 2 Samuel is a book about leadership. Um, we, we see good leaders and bad leadership decisions on display throughout uh, this study. 1 Samuel is about the rise and fall of King Saul. Uh, 2 Samuel 1 through 12, that's about the rise and fall of King David. And then in the, the, the situation we're in right now, or the section we're in right now, chapters 13 through 18, we're looking at the rise and fall of a guy named Absalom. And then through these three leaders, uh, we, we see what what good decisions look like and what bad decisions look like. And what, what it's really boiling down to is our need for a better leader, our need for a better king. And, and, and we understand that that better king has come, that descendant of David, that King Jesus has come. And, and in, as he, he left the throne and he took on flesh and he lived this righteous life on our behalf and he goes to, to an atoning death for us and he rises victoriously from the grave and he ascends gloriously, that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, because of what he's done, we now are free from the punishment of sin. We're free from the power of sin. We've been given the Holy Spirit, but we await a time when we're free from the presence of sin, when this king who has begun to reign, this king has begun to reign and rule in your heart, in your life. His kingdom is established here and now in you, and yet we wait for that kingdom to be consummated, to be finished when the king comes back and reigns and rules over everything, and the presence of sin is, is forgotten. But in the meantime, the sin, the presence of it, the fallenness, the brokenness is all around us, and it's particularly seen in leadership. Samuel is a, is a book about leading, but in another sense, it's also a book about following. When you're exposed to leadership that's fallen and sinful, how do you respond to it? Like when, when you see a leader who is, who, who is trying to lead, who is, who is trying to lead in a broken and fallen place, in a broken and fallen world, what do you do as a follower when they fail? Uh, I think this morning is uh, God in his sovereignty has, has put it on the calendar right where it needs to be. Um, as, as our students return, um, I think that, that though this message is for everybody here, I think um, this is especially important for young people to hear this message, to learn from Absalom. I wish that I had learned this lesson in my early 20s rather than my late 30s. There is something that Absalom teaches through his failure that we need. And if you will learn this lesson, it will save you a ton of heartache down the road. And so uh, I hope that all of you will listen in, but, but young people especially, grasp hold of this. Um, 
You can begin to turn with me, 2 Samuel chapter 15, before we dive in, a little recap. Uh, Chapter 11, King David commits adultery. He reaches out, he takes Bathsheba, the wife of another woman. They conceive a child together in order to cover up that conception. David murders. He has Uriah, her husband, uh, put into a place where he's killed on the battlefield, but he murders David the king, adultery. David the king commits murder. And in chapter 12, David the king is confronted. He's confronted and then he repents. And you might remember that that Saul, his predecessor, also sinned against God, but he was unrepentant. And so God took the kingdom away from Saul. David repents of his sin. So God's not gonna take the kingdom away from him. God leaves him in his position of power. He leaves him in place, though David is going to, to, to reel from the devastating consequences of his actions, he's still God's man for the job. He remains in place, and, and in chapter 13, we're introduced to a, a few of his kids. We are introduced first to Absalom. Absalom is David's third-born son, and he has a sister named Tamar. And his firstborn son, David's firstborn son, is Amnon. Amnon is uh, the crown prince. He's in line for the throne. He's the, the firstborn son, and as such, he is destined to become the future king of Israel. Amnon looks at his half-sister Tamar, lusts after her, and sexually assaults her. He then kicks her out into the street. And David, though angry over the situation, does nothing. Now, Put yourself in Amnon or Absalom's shoes for a second. Anybody have got a, ser- a sister? I have a sister. She's, uh, she's actually in heaven with Jesus right now, but growing up, she was seven years older than I was. And, uh, and even as a, a, a nine or ten-year-old, I watched the kind of guys that she dated, and I didn't like them. And, uh, and, and sometimes uh, they didn't treat her so good, and I hated that. And, and, and I put myself in Absalom's shoes, and, and if, if, if somebody did to my sister what Amnon did to Tamar, I would want justice. But Tamar doesn't get justice. Though David is angry, he does nothing. And not only is Amnon not punished for his crime against her, he's still going to be the king. He's still going to be the future ruler of Israel. And to be Absalom and to look at your brother Amnon knowing that one day you're going to have to bow your knee to that guy, submit to his reign and rule over God's people. That wouldn't go over well with me. Putting yourself from from a human perspective, looking from, from Absalom's eyes at this situation. So Absalom kills Amnon. Invites him to a party. A couple of, after a couple of years, he thinks the dust has settled. Uh, he has his servants kill Amnon, and then Absalom goes on the run. He, he flees to, uh, to to to, to uh, where his uh, his mother's uh, father lives, and uh, he lives as an exile for a period of time. And, and Jake walked us through last week, chapter fourteen, where uh, through a, a series of manipulative circumstances, Absalom is brought home, and uh, and when he comes home, David refuses to see him. For years, David refuses to see him. Uh, then through uh, more manipulative circumstances, uh, he, he's brought into David's presence, and there's Absalom, and there's David, and there is what Jake described last week as sort of a fake peace, a false peace, because they haven't actually dealt with the situation. There's no justice, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness, there's no dealing with anything that's going on. They just kiss each other on the cheek and don't deal with it. So 
Put yourself in Absalom's shoes. What is your view of King David? Dad. Your dad is an adulterer. How do you respect that? Your dad is supposed to be a just ruler who provides no justice. How do you trust that? From a human perspective, looking through Absalom's eyes, how do you see David? Is he respectable? Is he trustworthy? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where your leader is somebody you don't respect and you don't trust? How do you respond to that? Well, we see three responses in the text today. One put on display by Absalom, the other two are alluded to, and, uh, and we'll walk through those. But Absalom's response is the one that we begin with. And here, Absalom's response is essentially this. I will be the better king. David, dad, you failed. I will be the better king. So 2 Samuel chapter 15 It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So uh, Absalom looks at his dad, sees a leader that he does not respect, he does not trust, he decides he's going to be the better leader. He is ambitious, which is something that is praiseworthy in our culture and world. He's very ambitious, and so he decides to insert himself into the role subtly at first. And so he begins by driving a chariot through town. Now, in first century Palestine, uh, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This is rocky hill country. Uh, the Judean countryside was, was better uh, traveled by a mule back or, or, uh, or, or maybe a, uh, on, riding on the back of a donkey. But to try to, to ride around through the city on a chariot would be pretty slow going given the rocky terrain. But here's what Absalom is saying to the people. He's saying, I look like the kings of other nations. If you remember... The Israelite leaders, they came to Samuel years before, and they said, we want a human king. We don't want God to reign over us. We want a human king, like all the other nations have. Now, <clears throat> uh, chariots were, were, were the prize uh, uh, you know, um, transportation device of the Egyptians or the Syrians, not of the Israelites. And absolutely, he's, he's saying, look, look, I'm like the kings that you want. I'm like the kings that you're admiring, that you look up to. He's also saying by having 50 men run before his chariot, which is basically a unit of soldiers, he's basically saying, I'm using this military mode of transportation led by all these soldiers, this unit of military fighting men, because I am a valiant military warrior, like you need in a king. He's putting on display for the people to see, he's, he's putting up this image of the king that they, he believes that the people want. But it's an image he doesn't actually live up to. Absalom's never been in combat. He's never been in war. 
In fact, when it came to killing Amnon, he had his servants do it. He didn't even do it. He doesn't know what it means to take another life at the edge of a sword. And yet, he is telling people, he is he's showing people, hey, I'm, I'm the kind of king, like the other nations said, I'm, a, I'm the kind of king that you want. He's presenting this, this false picture of himself in order to win them to his side. The next thing we see him doing is he, he goes to the city gate early in the morning and he waits there all day for people to come to the city in order to meet with David. Now we know from chapter 14 last week that David did you know, hold court. He did have you know, an opportunity for people to come and express their, their needs to him and, and, and for him to decide matters of, of justice or, or, or whatever. David did do that, but Absalom's gonna deny it. People come to, to, to have a, a king settle, settle a, a dispute, and he's going to tell them, no, king's not going to listen to you. King's got no time for you. The, the king, he's not going to provide any way for you to get justice or for you to be heard. The king's failed you in this. But I'll listen to you. I'll listen to you. Where are you from? What's going on? Oh, man, you're so right in this situation. You know, if I were judging the land, this is what I would do for you. Now, if you think about it, did, did everybody that was coming to, to speak to David about an issue, was everybody right? Of course not. But here's Absalom. He's being a yes man. He's going to agree to everything. He's going to tell everybody that they're right. He's going to affirm everyone. He's going to make everybody feel loved and seen and accepted and heard. Notice the language here it says, whenever a man came to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him. That's the exact language that's used of Amnon when he reached out and took hold of Tamnar to sexually assault her. The author of Samuel is pointing to the sea. Once again, what does a king do? A king takes. And it looks like he's, he's, he's accepting you. It looks like he's embracing you. It looks like he's being the people's kind of king. What he's really doing is using you. He wants to steal your heart, and that's what he's going to do, and you're going to surrender it to him willingly. It's amazing how easily this is done, how we look to leaders, leaders we want to respect and leaders that we want to trust, and how easily we give away that respect and that trust, how easily we give our hearts away to human authorities, and then we're devastated when they turn out to be sinners. He steals their hearts. Now, who do these hearts belong to? They don't belong to David. They don't belong to Absalom. They belong to God. Absalom is stealing hearts that don't belong to him. He's taking what isn't his. Look at verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in, at Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron, but Absalom went, sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city in Galo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people from Absalom, for Absalom, kept increasing. 
So uh, it says at the end of four years, we're not certain whether that means the end of four years after he came back um, or if it's four years after he first saw David and they had this, this false peace exist between them. But some time has elapsed, a time in which he's rode his chariot around <clears throat> and he's, he's put on his mighty men on display and, and he has, he's sat at the gates and listening to people and, and stealing people's hearts. And now he goes to David and he lies. He says, I made a vow to God that, that if he would bring me home, if he would bring me back to Jerusalem, then I would offer sacrifice, sacrifices to him, thanksgiving sacrifices to him at Hebron. And, and David, for some reason, he, he, he doesn't have the eyes to see. I think once again, like he's so naive when it comes to his kids. He doesn't see what's going on. And so he says, yes, go in peace. But, he, but Absalom lies. He, he, he goes to Hebron because Hebron is the place where kings are anointed. It is, it is full of, of heavy symbolo- symbology around the, the idea of kingship. And he's going there to be anointed king. Now, uh, what he's done is he sent agents to all these cities and towns within Israel. And he set up these, these trumpets in relay systems so that when he's anointed and, and he makes these sacrifices, the trumpets will blow. They'll relay out the, the, the sound throughout the land. And, and when people, these agents in these cities and towns, hear the trumpets, they'll say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And, and just like that, the whole nation of Israel will hear there's a new king. And there will be this moment of shock and honor, and he'll, take, uh, 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 he'll just take them by surprise. And so he's anointing himself as king, and then he does something different. He calls Ahithophel. Ahithophel is, according to, to First Chronicles, he's one of David's counselors. He's, he's somebody who David relies on to get wisdom and advice from. He calls Ahithophel to join his team, to come to his side, to defect from David. And apparently he does. Now what's interesting about this is Ahithophel uh, means foolishness. And uh, and scholars think that Ahithophel is not his real name. It's just what he comes to be known as because he's going to lend his wisdom to the wrong team. Foolishness. David writes about him and this, this betrayal in Psalm 41.9 when he says, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This was actually used again uh, later on with Jesus in connection to Judas's betrayal. But David, he, he's betrayed by a close friend. And here what we see in Absalom is he's a, he's a man who steals the hearts and minds of the people. He takes what doesn't belong to him. He pretends to worship God when he said he's glorifying himself and, and now he's forming a team using people of influence. You can't lead an insurrection by yourself. You need a people. You need a team. You need people with clout. You need a team in order to lead an insurrection. So we, we read in verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the heart of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. Now, what's interesting here is that we're going to get into um, 
the, the civil war that's about to happen. The people that are following Absalom and, and they're going to fight the people that are following or defending David. There'll be a civil war, but it's encapsulated in just like three verses. However, 39 verses are given to David's departure from Jerusalem. Like just from, from leaving his palace to the last house in Jerusalem, 39 verses are, are, are devoted to, to um, putting this on display for us. And what we discover through this is that there's a lot of people who love David. He's encountering all these people who want to follow him, who are willing to lay down their life for him, who are willing to go where he goes. There's a lot of people that love David. And you know what's interesting is that when we look at leadership struggles, what you discover is, is that there are people who do, do nothing but demonize the opposition, but they do nothing but deify their guy, right? Like the, 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 the guy on the other team, he can do no good, but your guy, your team can do no wrong. Right? There's a group of people that following Absalom who believe David is the worst. You can't respect that guy. You can't trust that guy. He's an adulterer and a murderer. Like, you can't follow David. Like, David's the worst. And yet, there, there are these people who are like, David's the best. Like, David kills giants. And David writes psalms. And da- like, David's awesome. You know, I don't know about you, but as have we studied the book of, of, of 2 Samuel, we've looked at the life of David, a guy who's what is he called? Like a man after God's own heart, right? Like, what do you believe about David? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Do you want to hate David or do you want to love David? Like, where do you come down on him? Like, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? The answer is yes. He's both. See, in our world, we tend to polarize. We want to look at somebody. We want to categorize them. Either you're all bad or you're all good. We want to demonize people. We want to deify people. We're going to shame that side. We're going to praise that side. We're going to form our teams. We're going to go head to head, and and we're going to divide over human authorities. David, is he good or is he bad? The answer is yes. You see, from God's perspective, what are we? Sinners fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, including our leaders, All of us, sinful, fallen, broken, messed up people. And yet all of us dearly loved so that God sent forth his son to die on a cross for you and for me. Like, at the same time, we're dreadfully, horribly sinful and broken and fallen, and at the same time, desperately loved by God. And what we tend to do is we want to look at our opponent and we want to strip the image of God away from them and we want to deny God's love for them and we want to demean them and we want to push them down while at the same time we want to affirm that God loves us and we are made in the image of God and we are righteous and good and we could justify our insurrections. Well, the rest of the chapter we're going to see uh, David responds to Ahithophel's uh, uh, betrayal. Um, the, the one time we actually see prayer in the passage is here. Uh, David prays that, uh, that God would thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, this is a pretty, pretty like godless section of Scripture. God's hardly mentioned. This is the only time he's prayed to. But, but God is mentioned, and, and so <clears throat> what we see is uh, David sends his friend 
um, uh, Hushai into uh, to, to Absalom's presence. He pretends to defect from David. He plays the part of a double agent. Um, he will communicate to two priests who will then communicate to their sons to David, you know, feeding false information, but also getting information. And so, like, you, you see this sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I don't know, like 007 sort of situation going on here. Anyway, we'll get more into that this week or next week. But where we come down on this this week, what do we learn from Absalom and what he's doing? Like, from a human perspective, like, if you're not there, if you've never been there, you will be one day, where you look up and realize that the one you're following, your leader, is not worth your respect and not worth trust. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? The way of Absalom is to say, I'll be the better king. But in order to become the better king, I want to outline for you what you will have to do. The first thing you will have to do is in your mind, you're going to have to erase that person's dignity. In your mind, you're going to have to make that person the villain that you want them and need them to be in order to overthrow them. You need to strip them in your mind of God's love for them and affection for them. You need to dehumanize them and you need to demonize them. In order to justify your insurrection, you're going to have to bring them low, and at the same time, you're going to have to elevate yourself. You're going to have to deny your own failings and your own flaws. You're going to have to be self-righteous. You're going to have to justify all the things that you do. You're going to have to promote yourself and put yourself on a pedestal, and you're going to have to create a resume that follows it. Because what you're going to discover is is that those broken, fallen leaders, the the way that you've seen their broken and their fallenness is that you've seen them live their life in the way that they failed when they've encountered certain situations. And most of the time, it's situations you actually haven't encountered yet or faced yet. But you have to believe that when you face those situations, you'll do better. When you walk a mile in their shoes, you'll run it better. When you face what they face, you won't fail. You have to present this image to people because you need to form a team. And and to form your team, you're going to have to steal people's hearts and minds. You're going to have to demonize that leader to them. And you're going to have to lie about yourself and make yourself seem great. And you're going to have to pretend to care about all their problems. And you're going to have to approve of, of, of everything in order to win their hearts, in order to steal them. You're going to have to lie to them, you have to manipulate them, and you're going to have to go after the influential one, and you're going to need to build a big team because that team is going to be needed to, to march on your Jerusalem and to march on your opponent and to be successful in your insurrection. But you see, if you're going to be an insurrectionist, you're going to become the very thing that you are railing against. That's the way of Absalom. We see it in the workplace, we see it in our politics, and we see it in churches. There's another way. A second way to handle it. When you find yourself confronted with leadership that you can't respect and you can't trust, the second option is to leave. If you remember, David under Saul's rule, left. He kind of had to, because Saul was throwing spears at him and trying to impale him against a wall. David left. 
and he left without taking anybody with him. He went on his own. He left because his life depended on it. And, and he would spend the next 10 years or so on the run from Saul, and God would use that time to make him the leader that he wanted him to be. But he left. And I would argue that you might find yourself someday in a situation with just, just purely toxic leadership, abusive leadership. And under those circumstances, the right thing to do is leave. Protect your heart and leave. We also notice that David leaves a second time. Second Samuel 15, the chapter we just looked at, David leaves Jerusalem. This time, he's not going empty-handed. He takes his family and friends and his, his leadership structure with him, and he leaves Jerusalem. Why? Why doesn't he stay and fight? Because he's preserving life. This time, he's not just saving his life. This time, he's saving his family's lives. He's saving his friends' lives. He's actually ultimately saving Jerusalem from the edge of the sword. He's protecting his people. He's leaving in order to save life. I would argue there is a time to leave. But there's a time not to leave. See, there's good reasons for leaving and there's bad reasons for leaving. To, to, to leave because you want to preserve life, that's one thing. To leave in order to preserve your pride. See, I think what happens more often is that the person wants to lead an insurrection but knows they can't. They don't have enough hearts to steal. They don't have enough buy-in from the people. They can't form a big enough team in order to be successful. They, they, they can't lead an insurrection. If they could, they would. But they can't lead an insurrection, so the only alternative is to leave. But it's pride that drives them out. And see, here's the reality. If, if that's where you're at, you'll leave one kingdom, you'll go to another kingdom, and what will you discover there? another fallen, broken, sinful leader that you cannot respect and you cannot trust. So therefore, either you lead an insurrection or you leave. And kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, you'll go through, looking for the one where there is no sinful leadership. How do you think that'll turn out? You can lead an insurrection, you can leave, or there's a third option. Before I get to the third option, I want to say this. In the New Testament, we're told several times, we're given this command to obey earthly authority. To obey earthly authority as we obey to God, okay? It's important to understand that in this view, God has placed authorities over us and we are to submit to them, but in submitting to them, we really submit to God. And I want to point out something, that when God gives these commands, he doesn't say you have to respect those leaders, and he doesn't say you have to trust those leaders. You see, our respect and our trust is supposed to be reserved for God, right? You're not supposed, he doesn't say give your heart to those leaders. Our heart should be his. The third option, lead an insurrection, leave. Third option is follow the way of Jesus. You look at the life of Jesus and how he encountered broken, fallen, sinful leadership structures, right? From the time he begins ministry, like he's already met with like these group of Pharisees, these religious leaders who are already after him, already condemning him, already, you know. And what does Jesus do? 
He confronts them, yes, but does he kill them? Right, Jesus encounters this sinful leadership structures, political leadership structures. Herod Antipas, right? You can't trust that guy. He killed John the Baptist. You run into Pilate. Pilate will sacrifice you and send you to the cross in order to preserve you know, peace in the land. Like All of these broken religious structures that are in place over Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come to earth, call down legions of angels, and lead a big battle. He doesn't call these 12 disciples and say, I'm going to make you 12 generals over my 12 armies. Like, no, he calls them to be fishers of men. Like, Everything that Jesus does, he does confront and he does to, to go to lead an insurrection, but not against physical authority, against spiritual authority. Jesus leads this sinless life in order to be the right sacrifice, to make this atoning death, to, to suffer the wrath of God. Why? Conquer sin, because sin's the enemy. Sin's the power that's holding you in check. Sin's the thing that's keeping you a slave. Sin's the thing that needs to be addressed. He dies, but then he rises, and he conquers death for us. See, Jesus leads the insurrection, but against these spiritual powers and forces and authorities that are at work, that are really subjugating us. But in order to win that fight, what does he do? He submits to earthly authorities. He allows Pharisees to arrest him. He allows Sadducees to falsely try him. He stands before a governor, a, a, a governor and allows him to, to sentence him to death. He allows Roman authorities to nail him to a cross. He submits to earthly authorities to the point of death. Why? To accomplish something bigger. To accomplish something bigger. Absalom was about his kingdom. Jesus was about the kingdom of God. When you think about what it is that you're giving your heart to, who it is that you're following, what it is that you're living for, is it a temporal kingdom? Is it a job here? Is it, is it political stability here? Is it, is it you know, the perfect kind of church that you want to be a part of? Like, or is it something eternal that you're willing to sacrifice for? You're actually willing to even follow broken leaders for. And I'm not saying you have to respect sinful leaders. I'm not saying you have to trust in sinful leaders. I'm saying you trust in God. Despite the sin of your leaders. Because the truth is, is you're not going to be a better leader. You're just as fallen, just as broken as they are. The way of Christ is the way that brings in the better kingdom because he's the better king. I want to wrap up our time together this morning by partaking of communion. The, uh, the trays are on the inside rows. If you would grab a tray from, from your row and grab the elements and pass them down. As we uh, partake of communion this morning, I'd like to, us to meditate on something that we see in Samuel, something that we see in the life of King Saul and Absalom that is in stark con contradiction to the life of Christ. Right? In 1 Samuel, when we look at, at, at Saul's origins, um, in chapter 9, we read this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Berkorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. 
from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. The leaders of Israel came to Samuel and said, we want a king that looks like the other nations have. And God says, here's your guy. Isn't he handsome? You see, it was, it was more than just a physical attractiveness. The, the people looked at him through human eyes and saw what they thought would be the perfect leader. From a human perspective, he was the right guy from the job. 2 Samuel 14, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And once again, here's a leader. He's not just attractive physically. There's something about him that people look at and say, that's the kind of leader I want. That's the kind of guy I could put my hope in. That's the kind of guy I could put my trust in. And they give themselves away to this kind of leadership from a human perspective. The other thing that we see in Saul and Absalom is the monuments that they built. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, after God rejects uh, Saul as king, it says, for the word of the Lord came to Saul, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. He's disobeyed God. God's rejected him and his response is, I'm gonna build a monument to myself. He's not worshiping God, he's glorifying himself. He's not calling the people to remembrance of God, he's calling people to remember him. He's not calling people to give their hearts and minds to God, he's calling people to give their hearts and minds to him. Absalom does something similar. 2 Samuel 18, 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken out and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. In chapter 14, we read that he had three sons. Um, It's believed they died in, in infancy. So at this point when he builds this monument, he has no sons. But here's, what is he doing? setting up a monument to himself. In other words, he's not worshiping God, he's worshiping himself. The same thing that Saul did. He's not pointing people to God, he's pointing people to himself. When we look at what is, what is exemplified in our world about what leadership looks like, when you look at the powerful people who lead companies and the power people who, who lead political uh, parties and the people that run for office and you, and you, and you see even sometimes in the church the, the kind of people that are putting out an appearance of beauty, an appearance of, of, uh, of, of they've got it all together and, and yet what is it that they're doing? They're building monuments to themselves and they're pointing people to them. Like the, the, the attitude that's on display in, in Saul and in in an Absalom, like it's revered in our world. But do you see how Jesus contrasts these pictures? Like Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We look at Saul and we look at Absalom insurrectionists who all they want to do is make a name for themselves and we're like wow and we look at Jesus the son of God who who makes an end to sin and death for us like eh and what about his monument 
Where is there a monument? The monument is the New Testament. The monument is the church. The monument is you. It's the gospel. A people redeemed for God's own possession. A kingdom of people saved from sin and death. That's the monument of Christ. And you see, what Jesus does is he doesn't lead an insurrection to glorify himself to put himself at, at the head of large and vast armies. He doesn't, he, he doesn't come to conquer. He comes to die and to rise and to save. See, the question is, who are you giving your heart to? Who are you giving your heart to? Two, two questions. In considering Saul and Absalom and Jesus First of all, whose beauty am I beholding? Whose beauty am I beholding? Like, like who, is I, who am I looking up to? Who am I looking after? Who am I desiring to, to be the leader I want to follow? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're not satisfied with any leadership structure that's in authority over you. Maybe you think you're the better leader. Maybe you're the one that should be on the top of the pyramid. Who is it? Whose beauty are you beholding? Secondly, whose monument do you worship? Whose monument do you worship? Like, what is it that you look at in the world that you think needs to be reproduced? What leadership structures, what, what, what success in businesses, like what models of maybe church, you know? You look around there at other churches full of people and maybe different kinds of music or different kind of this or that, like, what, what kind of model should we embrace in order to get that? Like, what should, we, what should we do? What kind of monuments are you looking for? Are we content with a Savior who's humble, who's willing to lay down his life? Are we content with the gospel? Are we content with, with what he has for us as a church? Ultimately, it really is. Like, who has your heart? Who has it? Does it belong to Christ? Look, whatever leadership you've given your heart to, take it back. And and whether that's a boss or whether that's a a politician or whether that's a pastor, take it back. They're going to fail you. Give it to Jesus. He won't. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, Thank you. Thank you for your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the king that we need. Forgive us for the times we've looked elsewhere for leadership. Forgive us for the times we've given our heart to people who will only disappoint and let us down. Forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us for not seeing the bigger picture. Forgive us for trying to build our own little kingdoms. Forgive us for not wanting your kingdom to come in and actually doing things that that put a hand up to you and, and essentially say to you, I'm not ready yet. I'm still working on my own kingdom. Forgive us for the ways that we've done that. Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. Help us to see your kingdom for what it is. Help us to, to call out to people that need to be a part of this kingdom. 
Help us to love that much. Help us to submit to leaders who are not worthy of respect or trust, but we submit to them because you've called us to in obedience. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you, Lord Jesus. Amen.